This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I have, as always, a couple of fascinating guests on today's show. Later this hour, filmmaker Charlie Turnbull will join me on the line to explain how his love of Steinbeck's Depression-era classic The Grapes of Wrath inspired him and four friends to cycle the journey from Oklahoma to Bakersfield, California, following the trail of the fictional Joad family, internal refugees from the devastating drought uh, that really hit Oklahoma in the early part of last century, and how this still has so much to teach us about today. But that is coming up. First, local author Emily Bruin, whose first novel, Hello, Goodbye, drew heavily on the real histories of women who faced forced adoptions in the 1950s and 60s. Emily has a new book out, Small Blessings, which I will be lucky enough to help launch this evening at Readings Carlton. The book intertwines the stories of two women from seemingly disparate socioeconomic circumstances, but Emily very artfully pulls them together with a clear eye on issues of longing, loss, motherhood, family violence, entrenched sexism, and so much more beside. Emily, welcome to Backstory. Hi, Mel. Thanks for having me again. So congratulations on this, your second novel, which I have to say, um, I am just... I'm amazed at the number of very um, strong quality books that you're you're producing in a very short space of time. Oh, thank you. Talk to me a little bit about this one, though, because mm. I know the last book, um, and we have had you on Triple R, and I think actually uh, on the Grapevine show, uh, we did a, I did a reading room segment there, and you came on and talked about Hello Goodbye. Yeah, I think that might have been, was it 2017? Yeah, yeah. around when it was launched. Yes. Um, I- yeah. I do remember my daughter being stuck to the glass on the outside while we were doing the interview. Yeah, it's quite adorable. <laughs> so that book really did uh, very much draw on, on real-life kind mm. of um, experiences and interviews you'd done, family members' experiences mm. of forced adoptions. Mm-hmm. Um, it did bring those to life. And, and something about Small Blessings sort of, you know, has a sense of that really still lingering. Mm. The women in this book feel very real. Uh, and before we get too deep in the discussion, I, I really want to talk, uh, I want you to introduce the book uh, mm-hmm. and what it's about. And then I'm, I really want you to explain to me, and we've discussed this a tiny <laughs> bit, like what does a lost shoe have to do with this book and okay. how it started? <laughs> and that in itself is a long story. <laughs> uh, look, Small Blessings is um, told from the perspectives of two women, Rosie and Isabel. It's told in alternating chapters. Um, they do come from very different socioeconomic backgrounds, as you mentioned in your introduction. So Rosie is a real fighter. Um, I have a deep affection for Rosie, actually. She has come from um, a single-parent household where, you know, at times she felt quite um, threatened by some of the men that were coming into her life. Um, she then sort of falls into a, a volatile relationship and um, and drug use. And really at the point that we meet her, she's trying to rebuild her life. Um, she's looking after her small son who is on the autism spectrum and is is really just trying to make a life for him that was different to her own. Um, Isabel is sort of at the other end um, 
of this and she uh she lives a very privileged life um she has a great career as a lawyer um but has her own challenges as well so um her marriage may not be quite what she wants it to be and she discovers that um you know her mother is dying and that she would like to have a child but really these women i suppose the essence of the um of the book is that these women are both living that sort of modern dilemma of being surrounded by people and seemingly very busy lives but feeling quite isolated and quite alone and looking for connection and something happens in the book that ultimately sort of draws them together. Yeah, and I think, I mean, that's a a wonderful and succinct description (laughs) of exactly, um, you know, what the book's about. But I think, um, you know, the small details in this book is really what makes it. And I think... um, you know, it's really evidence of a well-crafted book that you find yourself really building a strong connection with characters just mm. through the minutiae of their daily lives. Um, there is a real inter, um, you know, twining of their histories with their, you know, their current sort of existence mm. um, in a way that feels quite effortless, I have to say. Sometimes oh, I feel like uh, <laughs> histories are, sl- are shoehorned in this it feels very much like, uh, you know, it, it fits together, especially because ultimately, and this is not really giving too much away, you start to really realise that these women have a lot in common, in fact, mm. um, much more than their surfaces would at first suggest. Um, but I am interested in that lost shoe because I think it is one of those details that actually mm. uh, you can tell that what kind of writer you are <laughs> by your sort of focus on detail. So talk to me about how that really help to generate your writing process? Because I'm sure a lot of people listening are either budding writers or Mm. incredibly interested to know how something that feels so, I don't know, substantial Mm. as a book comes from something so small Mm. as a lost shoe. Yes, the lost shoe. Uh, The lost shoe actually featured in a short story that I wrote just to sort of... um, explore some of the characters that I was interested in but it the short story originated from a trip that I did to Phillip Island which is where my parents live and as I was driving I think it was down the Monash um, I saw a blundstone boot in the middle of the of the road um, and I suppose uh, you know abandoned shoes have always sort of fascinated me you know they always prompt the question you know where is the owner what's happened to the other shoe um, and I suppose my imagination sort of runs wild with possibilities um, so I was quite interested in this idea of, of a lost shoe and I think, you know, putting a child into that picture makes it all the more um, fascinating. Um, so I wrote a short story um, with similar main characters, um, two women from different, very different socioeconomic backgrounds, uh, one of them whom happens to find a child's shoe in her front garden and this sort of sparks, um, you know, a whole lot of questions for her about what's going on in her own life and she ultimately starts to suspect that possibly her husband has something to do with um, the owner of the shoe who has, she finds, gone missing. Yeah. Yeah. So this, so how does this wind into the the novel that um, that has evolved? So from there, I was really, really interested in the female characters. Um, the judgment that went on between the woman, I suppose, that had quite a privileged background and the who was a little bit older, and the younger woman who was um, from a very sort of challenged background and was really trying to overcome those things. Um, I was. You know, interested in the fact that she she judged, yet there was a lot of commonalities between them when it came down to it, and that um, 
you know, I think that's something to to really recognise and to remember is that more often than not we have common ground with people and that, um, you know, we do seek connection with people and, and we need to um, seek out that common ground. See, this is such an interesting process that you've just described because... Uh you know, the real power of short stories is that feeling of what's not on the page. Mm. Like it's really, you know, like I don't want to say the cliche of the tip of the iceberg, but but there's a real echo of what's not written. Like you you feel as though you've kind of the best written short stories, you know, you've taken a slice of life mm. uh, that really just has a huge life behind it or, mm. you know, those... I guess, uh, Wolfian, beautiful caves um, that you can feel the, the kind of echoes of but but not see. So this is a real, you know, opportunity, I guess, to kind of extend that into a book-length thing. Mm. And so I do wonder, do you feel like, you know, because you do write a lot of short stories, Emily, yes. and in fact you've won awards for your short stories, what, um, you know, what is the difference really between a short story and a novel and how do you know when a short story is really a novel and when it's just a short story? Look, I think for me a short story is a bit of a microcosm. It's a it's an opportunity to sort of flesh out some of my characters, to try them out, to, you know, look at different settings, um, structure. And I think if I'm really, really interested in the story and um, I want to know more and I'm asking more questions about who these characters are and where they come from and what's happened to them, then, you know, to me that points in the direction of just needing to explore those things more. And um, I think, you know, I need to feel passionate about it. So if I feel passionate about a story and I feel passionate about the characters, um, then, you know, I will explore that in a sort of longer form. Um, So I suppose one of the things that I do initially when I'm planning a novel, although I don't do a lot of planning, but um, I do do a lot of character development. So I suppose the characters in my short story give me a starting point. Um, And from there, obviously, you know, I feel that I need to know more about them and their histories and their families and, and the worlds that they come from. Yeah. And that's probably what you sense, I suppose, in the background. Yeah. Yeah. If you just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on 3 Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm talking to author Emily Bruin about her latest novel, Small Blessings. Emily, it's um, it's really interesting uh, as well. I, you know, the way you've written this book is is kind of a classic structure uh, mm. where you've you've kind of taken two narratives that begin separately. Um, you explore those characters and then you give them a collision at a mm. certain point, um, and you know, and then it kind of goes on from there. Mm. I am interested because you have just touched on talking about structure, mm. and there are a lot of um, schools of thought on how to structure things, mm. uh, particularly, I guess. Authors whose plots are really central to how the book works yeah. tend to plan that out quite heavily. And a lot of character-driven books, you know, as you've just mentioned, might mm. spend more time on character development. What do you have an orthodoxy when it comes to this? What kind of advice would you give um, a young or up-and-coming writer, mm. um, emerging writer of any age? I have to really stress. <laughs> <laughs> um, not thinking about anyone in particular um, about like how to kind of go about things because you've really, I mean, this is something that you've kind of decided to devote yourself to mm. recently. So, so if you don't mind sort of talking mm. a little bit about that, I'd, I'd be really fascinated to hear. Um, in terms of structure. In terms of how, you know, you've said you do a lot of character studies and not, yes. not much plot development, but yeah. was that true of your first book? And I know you're you're heavily um, into your third, which I think is almost at, like at completion stage. Hopefully someone buys it. 
Uh, look, it's it's really funny. I think I think you you write. You know, you learn as you write. Um, initially, for Hello Goodbye, I remember I spent a good couple of years on it, and then did um, I did professional writing and editing at RMIT, as many good writers do, <laughs> um, and people in the industry. And I remember having a class on structure, and it dawned on me that I needed a structure for this manuscript that I'd already written about, you know, five times. And so I went home and sort of tried to squeeze it into some kind of structure. And luckily, um, it you know, I realised that it sort of reasonably naturally fit within that sort of three-act structure. So I don't – look, I don't get – hung up on that sort of thing but I think it's I think it's often something when we're telling a story it's just often the natural path of things that that's the way that we tell stories um and in terms of uh my sort of planning process I suppose for a novel it starts often with a short story then I will write um if I have an idea I'll come up with a sort of synopsis of what I think the story might look like very loose um, and then I will do you know, more character development. So that is really delving into my characters. So I was speaking um, at an author event the other day and trying to explain this process, but for me it's sort of like you need to get to know your character <clears throat> like they're a close friend. So you might start with their appearance, um, someone that you see on the street. Then you might think about, well, if I met this person at a party, what sort of things might I know about them, you know, like their job or their family history. Then you might um, pretend that they're sort of a close friend and what you'd know about them. And and then you, I see you want to keep burrowing down. So at some point you need to know what are their sort of greatest fears and desires and um, dreams for the future and um, memories and all that sort of stuff. So I suppose it really is drilling down to get to know your characters. Once I've done that, I sort of do it. It's, it's a little bit like a plot outline, I suppose, but it's sort of I kind of... Um, plan the book out in terms of chapters with a topic sentence and that just gives me a sense of direction when I'm writing but look it's so loose and the thing I'm writing at the moment um, which is actually manuscript four is a complete mess I did try the old like right into the void and see what happens <laughs> um, which is really unnatural for me and it just fell apart right into the void <laughs> is a definite alternative name yeah. for this show yeah. and look you know as a consequence there's probably about 30,000 words that are just going to be lopped off during the second um, edit because I really didn't feel like I had a great mm. grasp of the story of my characters um, which is unusual for me um, so, yeah, I sort of then went back to something that I was comfortable with and it's starting to work now. This is a really lovely thing to bring up, actually, because I think a lot of writers and, and people, actually a lot of readers have a presumption that people come into writing with fully formed ideas and mm. books, but there's a lot of dead bodies hidden on yeah. laptops around <laughs> around Melbourne in particular, but many other places as well. Are those dead bodies necessary to really kind of help generate the living ones or to help to kind of really, you know, tell you what characters deserve to have life? I'm trying to – this is almost turning into a Mary Shelley galvanistic kind of <laughs> horror story, like about, you know, writers willy-nilly killing yeah. off their characters yeah. so that others might live. Um, but is there is there kind of something in that that there's like these Frankenstein characters that, that are born of, of things that don't – I'm really regretting this. So <laughs> metaphor, but I, but you know what I'm trying to say is that yeah. actually things don't emerge perfectly. It's a, yeah, yeah. Well, can you talk a little bit about that? Because obviously you're someone who has generated books that are 
you know, seen to completion. But are they the the legacy of, of other kind of practices and uh, sometimes they are. Often they're the legacy of, of different characters or different forms of the one character. So, you know, there's sort of these ghosts of my characters that are now, but they've got several, you know, former lives, I suppose. Um, because, you know, as you're redrafting, I, I'm a big believer in you sort of writing your way into something. So, um, you know, as as I'm redrafting, I'm getting to know my characters um, better and they change over time and so that you know the person that they were in the first draft um, isn't the person that they are in the final draft um, I do sometimes kill characters off and it's quite you know I take great pleasure in you know speaking <laughs> it's to, a safe to non-writers kind of murder. <laughs> it's right. so godlike oh the power um, yeah so there are there are characters that I have have killed off or sort of half killed off so they might be in you know part of the manuscript and then they've served their purpose and I think there's an art in that there's an art in knowing um why a character is there what is their purpose and you know not letting them overstay their their visit um so yeah look there's I think there's going to the one that I'm working on at the moment there's a definitely a gnarly old surfer that's got to go I think (laughs) (laughs) Nana's going I'm sure that's not the first time someone has said that actually (laughs) as well um Emily I'm going to put you on a little bit on the spot feel free to to tell me if you're okay with Mm -hmm. this but I would love to hear a reading from Small Blessings do you have one that you might have prepared or are you feeling a little like uh look I've got one um actually I I do have one that's being read tonight. Is that okay? It's just oh, absolutely. My, my bookmark's in there. Yeah, I, I would um, um, just because I think, uh, you know, particularly with a book like this, one of the, the real pleasures of reading a book that, you know, it doesn't move much in, in terms of place um, mm. is that, you know, you really do, you know, you go through the the experiences or the journey, you know, internally. Mm. The, the characters are... You know, and the writing is what keeps you there, and that's true of this book. So, I, I very definitely would like uh, listeners to hear some of what they may read when they pick this book up later. Excellent. Okay, so this is a little bit from Rosie, who I said um, at one point actually, someone called her, someone that was interviewing me referred to her as a victim, but in my mind, she's really a survivor and she's a fighter, and I love her for that. Um, but she's been through some tough times in her life, and um, this is one of them. So, from Rosie. They were squatting in an old warehouse in Footscray when life completely unravelled. It was one in a long line of drafty buildings she called home for a while. She did her best to decorate it with chairs from hard rubbish and jars of stolen garden flowers, even built a bed from wooden pallets. Joel made the most of her hard work. He lay back on the rough blankets she'd scavenged from the salvos and smoked cigarettes, so she thought he was happy, for now at least. But it never lasted long. He was a tomcat, always leaving but coming back now and then to mark his territory. In the end, she wasn't sure if he was coming or going, or if she wanted him to stay. She wasn't sure of anything. She spent hours staring at the rough brick wall opposite the bed, waiting for his footsteps on the concrete floor. You've got to tidy yourself up a bit, Rose, he said one day as they lay on the mattress smoking a spliff. The dope relaxed him. She let her guard down and turned into him until she could feel his ribs. His clothes smelt like hers, dank and sour. It was weeks since they'd showered. In summer, she'd scam her way into the local pool and use the change rooms. She'd get lucky sometimes, and an unsuspecting swimmer would find their clothes gone or their shoes missing. 
once she even scored a purse, left in a bag on the bench. Joel loved her for it for a while and they lived off the spoils until he buggered off with the credit cards. You're letting yourself go. She tried to ignore the growing tightness in his voice, watching instead the ghost of smoke in the air above their heads. There was a time when she might have told him to get fucked, but that time had passed. She nuzzled closer, a dog trying to avoid a kick. Are you listening to me? His body tensed, and she knew he wasn't about to let it go. Yeah. You really do. His words stung through the smudgy high. It was true. People put their hands to their noses when she got on the tram and pressed their faces to the windows. She was an outcast looking in. Even Vera told her to have a wash on the rare occasions they saw each other, which was rich coming from a woman who'd hardly have debathed her as a kid. She tried not to move, not to breathe. He wedged his skinny leg roughly between hers, making her stomach churn. Joel trod a fine line between love and hate. You never knew what to expect. I know I do. She knew the drill. But Joel was on his high horse now. You don't get it, you really fucking reek. He shifted away and clambered off the mattress, then stood over her dick dangling from his T-shirt. And she laughed despite herself at the sight of it, hanging all limp and useless. His fist came out of nowhere, ripping a hole in her laughter, splitting her face. She saw stars, stared at him through them while he'd, while he'd landed another. You stupid bitch. Too late. She tried to cover her face. You'd be nothing without me and another. Something cracked inside her skull. Bones or teeth maybe. Or maybe her will to live. It was hard to tell through the barrage. She couldn't say where each hit ended and where the next begun. They formed a drumbeat in her head until she stopped fighting. Stopped trying to protect her face. Stopped begging him to leave her alone. That might have been the point that he walked away. She couldn't say. By then... Everything was darkness. Emily, thank you. That was uh, that's quite a um, brutal passage, but one that I think really, you know, um, sets up what this story can really do. Um, and thank you for that. And You're to welcome. anyone who may be slightly triggered by um, that um, experience as well of, of family violence, of course, um, you know, helplines are available. Um, so uh, I would like to thank you, Emily, for um, coming on today. I have very much enjoyed reading this book and getting to chat with you. I'm so again, glad. Emily. Thank you so much for having me. Such a pleasure. <laughs> that was uh, Emily Bruin, author of Small Blessings. Soon, filmmaker Charlie Turnbull will join me on Backstory to explain how Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath led him and a group of friends on a madcap bike adventure from Oklahoma to California. Three. Triple. It has been something like 70 years uh, since John Steinbeck published Grapes of Wrath, his Depression-era classic, a harrowing humanist portrayal of the mass internal migration of farmers devastated by a savage drought, one that turned Oklahoma into a dust bowl. The Okies, as they were pejoratively known, were literally starving and made their way to California in the hopes of a better life. 
It's a book that, for filmmaker Charlie Turnbull, never lost relevance, so much so that he and a group of friends decided to follow the trail of the fictional Joad family, but this time by bicycle, and to film it as they went along. The resulting documentary feature uh, and soon-to-be TV series, Grapes of Wrath, has already won international awards, and... uh, It will have its first local screening at the Astor next Tuesday, the 19th of February. Charlie joins me on the line now to talk about uh, this film and this incredibly moving and also slightly insane adventure. Charlie, welcome to Backstory. G'day, Mel. How are you doing? I am good. I I really, um, I have to say I was lucky enough to get a preview screening of this film and I have to admit, total disclosure, I, I do know one of the adventurers um, that you travelled with, Cameron Ford. Um, and yeah. so I actually very weirdly uh, was on, like just happened to be going to America at exactly the same time he was setting out on this trip. And to give it a little bit of background as well, this was um, in the lead up, like during the kind of, uh, I guess, the presidential sort of primaries um, when it wasn't clear. Yeah. Yeah who was going to end up in, in you know, in office, um, which, of course, we all know what happened um, during that fateful time. So it's very easy in hindsight to say, what a great idea you had, Charlie, to, to go through this kind of um, right. this part of America to sort of look at, um, you know, why maybe, um, you know, there might be some issues still in these areas and, and what that might mean in the broader picture with where America's going. But that very much wasn't necessarily the case. So... Can you talk a little bit about what motivated this trip and why you were such a devotee of Grapes of Wrath in the first place? Sure, yeah. So, I mean, I read the book probably six or seven years ago. Um, I was actually travelling through South America and, and some another traveller just handed me the book and said I should read it. Uh, and I did and I fell in love with it. And I, I think mainly because I... It just seems so startling that what Steinbeck was writing about seems so relevant and so pressing in uh, the United States today. And um, for that reason, I just thought it was such a, an incredible piece of work. Um, and, and, you know, I had been working for Outward Bound Australia, as had Oliver and Leon, two of the cyclists, and we, we all like a bit of an adventure, so we thought, why not kind of mould an adventure around um, this novel? And the, the second thing is all of us, um, all of the five cyclists that were fascinated with the United States and in particular, you know, the Bible Belt, Middle America, small town America. Um, so, yes, Trump had just announced his run for the presidency, um, but I think even before that we were all pretty fascinated with that part of the world and we thought what a great way to kind of look at it through through the lens of this iconic novel. Now, before we get into the nitty-gritty of the film, I really want you to set up exactly what what and who it was um, that was going on in this in this film, because really none of you were, you know, incredibly experienced <laughs> experienced touring bike riders. I have to say um, that is very no, evident. That's, that's, that's almost an understatement. No, we were all complete amateurs. I think the most we had ridden was about twenty kilometres in a day. Um, so yeah, we, we basically decided to retrace the Dust Bowl migration from Oklahoma to California, which is about 2,600 kilometres. Uh, and we were going to do it on bicycles and we were going to do it with $420, which is the amount that the Joad family had in the novel. They had $18. Adjusted to inflation is $420. Um, and, you know, none of us were cyclists, as you said, and we thought we'd just 
have these parameters and we'd get on the bikes and we'd see what happened. So it was myself uh, and uh, uh, my good friend, uh, Leon, um, Oliver Chiswell, Red, and of course the co-director, co-producer Cameron Ford. Yeah, and it, it is quite the journey. Um, I'd love you to talk about it a little bit in your own words in terms of the people that you met along the way because you really, were you to have made up a, a fictional version of this, you couldn't have crafted such perfect characters. Yeah. Um, can you can you talk about some of the... Because, you know, really those characters um, do get treated with a great humanity. Um, all of you are, you know, very visibly moved <laughs> by the experiences and rightly so. Um, but talk a little bit about some of the people that you've met uh, over the yeah. course of this journey. Of course, yeah. And um, so, you know, riding through, like I said, middle America, Oklahoma, Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, and then into California and... And, and the characters in, in these small towns that we go through, really, that's the whole point of the film. I mean, it sounds like it's a film about cycling, but it's really about these these characters we meet. And, and they're just, I mean, there's no other way to describe them apart from everyday Americans. And, of course, they're very quirky. You know, we meet a survivalist cowboy, uh, a, a pair of very funny veterinarians. Um, we, we meet all sorts on this trip, and they've all just got so much character and so much life. They're incredible in front of the camera. Um, but the biggest thing we noticed was how generous they were and how hospitable they were and, um, you know, how they just wanted uh, for us to succeed and, and how positive they were about our journey. There was, I mean, look, you, you're four, you know, five rather um, guys from Australia from, you know, like relatively privileged backgrounds compared to a lot of the people that you're meeting course, along the yeah. way. Um, but the absolute, like, an actual tangible generosity, people giving money that they barely had but insisting on it, wanting to support you because you were sort of emblematic of, of something that was still very deeply important to them, that shared humanity was, you know, there was nothing kind of artful about um, how this was happening in, you know, in your reaction to it. Um, it didn't entirely surprise me, I have to say. I worked for years at The Big Issue and saw, you know, like just to mention one instance, um, during the 2009 um, Black Saturday fires, um, street vendors who had themselves and still remained in insecure housing, um, raising money for people who lost their homes during the bushfires, which just, you know, really is evidence of what you're discussing. But some of the things that really came out of this, um, and you as filmmakers have gone back over and really drawn the comparisons, is is the way in which... Um, People, the, the people that were referred to as Okies, who are actually these real internal refugees from, um, you know, an act of climate um, that really made their lives um, impossible, um, were treated by the people at the time. And drawing parallels between that and how the migrants perhaps from Mexico are being treated now, a vast difference between that and the people that you meet along the way. But can you talk a little bit about what your decisions to frame the film in that way? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, that's an amazing story about the uh, the big issue, Mel. And I think um, we saw that countless times, you know, on our journey. These people without anything would give us, you know, whatever they had to help us succeed. And I just loved that. And and I just, you know, it made me think of that line in the novel uh, where Marjode says basically, if you ever need help. Um, go to poor people; they're the only ones that will help. And I and I couldn't believe how how relevant that seemed on our journey and how fitting that was. Um, in terms of the 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 migrant angle, that was so you know 
that was such an obvious parallel for us as we read the book and then as we, you know, completed the journey and then in the edit room. And, of course, the situation is very different. You know, there are internal uh, migrants versus international migrants, but just the, the, the core concept of treating these people with dignity um, and kindness and, and seeing them as humans rather than a, than a problem or a threat just seems so stark and such a parallel between what Steinbeck was writing about and what's happening now in the United States. And, and obviously none of us live there and it's not really for us to make a comment on, you know, their immigration system, but we thought, well, you know, our job was to talk to people about it and get their opinions and their perspectives on what was happening. And I think we, we you know, that's what we tried to do the entire time and leave our own comments um, kind of out of the film. If you've just joined us, you're listening to 3RRR. The show is Backstory and I'm your host Mel Cranenberg and I'm talking to filmmaker Charlie Turnbull who, with a group of equally insane friends, decided to follow the uh, journey of the fictitious Jode family from Grapes of Wrath by cycling from Oklahoma to California. A brutal trip um, as far as <laughs> their bodies went. You guys who, you know, relatively um, fit and healthy you know, young people um, really didn't fare that, that well at certain <laughs> points of the adventure. No, not at all. We thought we were fit and healthy, but um, it's a whole different thing riding that far um, each day. Really, it was really pretty tough. I don't want to give away too many of the plot points, but, um, but yeah, they, you know, people do come a cropper and pretty early on, um, which leads to some interesting, interesting, and I'm sorry to say that there is a moment, like a little bit of a schadenfreude um, element that's going on in there too. Um, I'm sure. But I, I have to say there's something that, um, that there were a couple of encounters um, that were incredibly moving. Um, one was um, a man who um, you meet along the way who um, is obviously undergoing some serious mental health issues and has decided to sort of take himself on what he describes as a death march. The second is a, an encounter with a young man outside of a um, of a supermarket um, who sort of makes this observation that you all seem like people who've like you know got careers and lives. And and you're choosing to put yourselves in these ex- in extremists and he's like you know the only reason I'm doing this man is because I don't have a choice both of those things really really stayed with me I would love to hear your perspective on those encounters yeah I mean but uh, they're both really two powerful moments in the film and they both not rattled us but they made us really think about what we were doing and 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 uh King Theo the, the guy outside the supermarket store I mean his line was you know um, like you said, we're doing this for fun and this is how he actually um, lives his life every day. And I think, um, you know, we we wanted to be very careful and we really wanted to state that we weren't trying to retrace or re, re-enact, you know, the Dust Bowl migration or any sort of migration where people are desperate and they don't know where, you know, where their next home is going to be. And there's there's just no comparison in that regard because... Of course, at the end of the trip, we would fly home to Australia and we had jobs and loving families and, you know, it was just a completely different dynamic. Um, So I think, you know, when that happened, it really occurred to us that our job was to be a conduit for these people on the ground and um, to, you know, put the camera in front of them and not make it about our own 
journey, which was a great journey, but, you know, in the hot ground scheme of things, it's pretty trivial and it's just a fun thing five people did. So it really, it really kind of gave an extra um, sense of gravity to our job and our kind of mission um, in, in making the film. And, and Joe, I mean, on the, on the side of the road, um, that as well was a real turning point for us. It was about halfway along the ride and it was just it was just quite incredible because the night before we had just been completely welcomed in to this community and um, someone had let us stay at their house and we were just talking about how incredibly supportive and generous all these people we've met were and then the following day we see someone on the road who's just essentially slipped through the cracks um, is, is down and out and um, probably like a lot of other people in the United States, you know, no support network. So it was a real stark kind of contrast or a contradiction. Um, yeah, that, that maybe the people who need the help the most aren't getting it because perhaps they're not seen to be, you know, enough like the people who can offer the help. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a very, that's a very astute observation. And the other thing is that we noticed is that people seem to be very willing to support their community, their small town. Um, and they would raise money or, you know, support community organisations or help their neighbour out in any way they could. But uh, it seemed like once it extended beyond that, um, that small community, there wasn't as much, you know, empathy, really. Talking about empathy, I do want to talk about, um, because this is, after all, a book show, and um, you very heavily uh, draw on... um quotes from the Grapes of Wrath, you get the characters to read out sections from the book, um, which are sections that really do have a very kind of almost spine-tingling relevance still. I'm really interested in this because I think what you've done, which is, you know, I guess an act of, um, of using storytelling to promote empathy, is is what Steinbeck did. He, he used his craft to really bring you inside the hearts and minds of people who are actually making this journey and you did try to foreground that by having having, you know, the people that you meet read it. Can you talk about how you chose those quotes and, and you know, why you made the sort of uh, editorial choices you did with getting people to read those out? Sure, yeah. I, I'm, I'm glad um, they were spine-tingling for you. I, I think that means we probably chose the right ones. And it was a, you know, it was a long process and we edited the film over two and a half, three years um, and to get it down to a hundred minutes was a pretty big task and once we had the structure I kind of reread the book and we had the main storylines within the film and we knew we wanted to touch on wealth inequality and um, yeah, immigration slash migration and, and the American dream and I kind of went through and I had always you know I'd picked a few out from the first time I ever read it there are a couple of just such uh such bang on quotes in that book um but i i we kind of cut the film and then reread the book a few times and and picked out the most um relevant and kind of profound parts that would really um complement the 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 film and i guess getting getting the characters to read them i mean the, the whole the whole film is about these characters uh, as much as it's a bike ride that the five of us do. Um, really, it's about the people we meet and their small towns and their communities. And to, to have them read, you know, these really profound quotes that Steinbeck wrote 80 years ago that seem just as relevant today, that seemed like a really 
fitting way to, to construct the film. Uh, we're coming very quickly to the end of the show, Charlie, but I, I do have to mention a couple of things. Firstly, um, you have the feature um, length version of this um, film coming out next week on Tuesday. Um, we've just confirmed that actually I'm going to be doing a Q&A with yeah, you guys, which amazing. Yeah, I'm very excited about. So that's um, uh, the 19th at the Aster. At what time and are there still tickets available? Uh, yeah, that's at 7pm at the Asta, and you can pre-purchase tickets at um, au.demand.film. Um, so hop online and come down and come see Mel. <laughs> um, and I do also uh, want to stress that this will be coming out as, I, I believe, a television series um, and perhaps a feature-length film um, that will be airing. Um, can I say where, or is that...? That not confirmed uh, I yet. I don't think we've announced that yet. Yeah. I, yeah, sorry. That is something that's happening. And also, you should keep uh, an eye on these uh, people because um, you have been led by yet another book to do an even more completely off-tab off journey. I really just honestly can't imagine how your loved ones are coping with you doing these <laughs> insane things. Um, do you want to mention what that is? Because yeah, I yeah, still sure. am reeling that you've even done this. It's kind of ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was a real step up from the bike trip. But, uh, yeah, Cameron and I, in uh, 2017, we filmed the follow-up documentary, which is based on the adventures of Huckleberry Finn. So we travelled to Minnesota and uh, built a homemade raft, and we spent 90 days travelling down the Mississippi River on, on $210, looking at race relations in America from the north to south along the riverbanks. And... And actually, we will be um, uh, unveiling the the trailer for that for that trip at the after screening after the bikes are back screened. So you'll get a sneak peek. I'm I'm okay to watch it now that I know you didn't actually die. Although that was definitely not a foregone conclusion. I, I can still remember Cam saying that you know we're just going to make the raft out of the logs that we find in the Mississippi River, and I'm just thinking they're going to die. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was completely foolhardy and naive, and we realised again pretty quickly that it was a it was a beast of a trip. And um, again, we had a lot of a lot of help along the way. Otherwise, we would still be somewhere in Minnesota or Wisconsin, you know, trying to trying to tie a few logs together. Well, I'm afraid that's all uh, that I have time for. Of course, um, if you can catch the screening next week, um, I will be there. Um, Charlie Temple, thank you so much for joining us on Backstory. Thanks so much, Mel. Cheers. I would like to thank my wonderful guests today, Emily Bruin and Charlie Turnbull. Three. Triple. You've been listening to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg. And if you like what you've heard, you can listen to the live version of the show Wednesdays at 12 on Triple R. Join the stream on the Triple R website or subscribe to this podcast in your favourite podcatcher. Thanks for listening. Join me again soon. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.